I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Today's guest is the wonderful Emma Slade. Emma had a highly successful international career in finance. She was a senior financial analyst who worked in London and New York and Hong Kong and lived that jet setter life, high heels, big meetings, working on $1 billion plus portfolios. That is until one life-changing event flipped her life upside down. She was on a visit to Jakarta in Tunisia and she was held hostage in a hotel room at gunpoint. As she ran away from that room, her life changed forever. She discovered in herself a yearning to understand the deeper aspects of what it is to be human. She put her financial career on hold and began traveling and exploring yoga and meditation. A chance meeting with a Buddhist Lama on her first visit to Bhutan in 2011 led to her becoming the first and only Western woman to be ordained in the Himalayan kingdom of Bhutan as a Buddhist nun. Emma has founded the registered UK charity Opening Your Heart to Bhutan back in 2015. With it, she builds medical and educational facilities to help children with special needs in Bhutan. And for it, she was given the Points of Light Award by the UK Prime Minister in recognition of her charity work. Her first book, Set Free, I think is a wonderful title, was published in April 2017, and I think is a very strongly recommended read. We're going to talk about it a little bit today. One thing that I find incredibly interesting about Emma is that as she ascends in her spiritual path as a nun, she's still busy, engaged in every day's life just for a different purpose, for a purpose of making the world a better place. Her story of transformation is really eye-opening, and I hope you will find inspiration in it today as much as I find every time I speak to Emma Slade. Hello. Ah, Oh my goodness. I couldn't believe that. You are like the guru of IT, and you have these little IT problems. That makes me feel very happy, I have to say. I have them all the time. We've never really managed to make IT work, I'll tell you that. I, um, I wanted to ask you what's on your mind today. I know something amazing will come. Okay, what's on my mind today? Uh, okay, what's on my mind today is a lot of things, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, because the human mind is capable of having a lot of things on its <laughs> mind all at once, isn't it? So today I've been preparing for my speech at the Oxford Union, which is in a few days' time. And it's about whether 
corporates can truly be a force for good in the world. So this is something that I've been thinking about a lot today. So that's on my mind. And then I've been planning my class to teach on Buddha nature, which is the practically factual, like matter of fact way that Buddhism says that every sentient being has in them the seed of a completely enlightened Buddha already sitting there. This blows me away, by the way. <laughs> Does it? Yeah. When we spoke last time and you mentioned that, so we, you know, in the Islamic culture, we have something very similar. We call it fitra. I actually grew up a Muslim, but I practice so many, so many spiritual religious teachings. I think there is beauty in every one of them, including atheism, by the way, which most people get shocked when I say, because I love the approach of debate and thinking and so on. But in the Islamic culture where I grew up, there is that idea of fitra, which basically is almost to say that we are born enlightened and then we go out of that enlightenment. It's like the childlike nature is truly, you know, not grasping and not hateful. And it has all of the features, if you want, in the machine that we want to have in the machine. And then that changes. When you told me that last time, I actually started to write about it. It is incredible to think that way, that we have that seed in us. Yeah, I'd say a few things there. Absolutely, we all have that seed, that potential to become a Buddha. Maybe we should clarify, what do we think is a Buddha? A Buddha is a being which is called completely awakened. And that means that they have spontaneous, limitless, compassion, wisdom, and ability. They have the ability to also lead others on that way. So if you think, oh, you know, this is what I could do, or this is my potential, this is what is within me, this is a possibility, then I think it's very wonderful, and that is Buddha nature. Having said that, this is described as a primary cause, like, let's see, Okay, so you're going to make bread. So a primary thing there is flour, all right? You're never going to get bread without flour. But flour alone won't do it. Yeah, you need heat, you need an oven, you might probably need like a tray, you need some pummeling to knead some dough or whatever, right? So the Buddha nature essence is there. It's not inevitably going to come to full fruition without some other conditions arising. But also in the texts, they say there are four kinds of lives. They also say that those born in light that go to the light, those born in light go to the darkness, those born in darkness go to the light, those born in darkness go to the darkness, right? So we also have to recognize that although the primary cause is there, the, the basic inherent possibility there's a course of a life to be lived in which different conditions will come up, different choices will be made, the impact of karma will be felt. So I just want to counter that, that idea that although Buddhism recognizes the presence of Buddha, Buddha nature in everybody, it doesn't say that that cute little child was born perfect. It doesn't say that. So there may be a difference there with what you described from your culture. I don't know with that idea. You know, my theory is that we are all born happy, right? So we are children, if they are safe and loved and they're given what they need, they 
don't need anything from outside them to feel calm and peaceful. And that the idea is that we start to grow into external conditioning, if you want, that makes us more unhappy. And I think I found that very often a process of negation, that removing the things that were added to you is actually the one that leads you back to that nature, Buddha nature or Fitra or whatever that is. Don't know about that. It sounds very seductive. (laughs) I'm not sure that we can. Certainly from a Buddhist point of view, it is about taking off the layers. It is about uncovering that Buddha nature. But those layers don't tend to be described as external things. I think you said external things a minute ago, right? Sometimes conditioning becomes within you. So when you're conditioned, it becomes part of you. It actually becomes a bigger part of you than than the hidden rest of you. But it comes from outside you to start. I mean, if you have that seed in you and then your parents tell you that it's important to be rich, for example, and then you get conditioned around that form of ego or desire or whatever, then that becomes part of you, but it came from outside you. Okay, let me, let's think about this for a minute. So are you saying here that if a child had never heard about anger or witnessed anger, they would have no possibility of being angry? So I don't have evidence for that, but the experiments that were done in behaviorism in the 1900s and the early 1900s actually said that if a child was never conditioned for fear, they wouldn't feel fear. So the very famous experiment was called Little Albert, where a child was simply shown items that included dolls and balls and white rats and a puppy and so on and so forth. And while some of us are conditioned to fear rats, the child had no fear whatsoever for rats. And then they, they started to condition the child by banging a metal, you know, with a hammer when the rat showed up. And then the child started to feel the fear of that specific thing. And behaviorism will say that you could have made him feel the same fear of oranges or chocolate by associating chocolate with a loud noise or a, a feeling of unsafety. Okay, I mean, fearlessness in the Buddhist context is a state to aspire to. And it is a state where the need to kind of put your own interests first, to establish your own safety or your own goals above all else, whatever is happening, where that basic thing has pretty much dissolved. So... I don't know those studies. They sound very interesting, but from a Buddhist point of view, when a consciousness enters another body, that subtler part of that consciousness, more subtle probably than the types of mind you're talking about in that experiment, will have these karmic imprints in it. You can call them samskaras. Sometimes we can call it in yoga, in Sanskrit we could call it samskaras. Pabjak is the word in Tibetan, excuse my Tibetan pronunciation. And they will be these very subtle predispositions. And they will be there. And so they may be very, very subtle. But from a Buddhist point of view, this is not my opinion. In the very enormous, enormous nature of the mind, from the coarse to the subtle, to the most subtlest part, 
if we look at it in that way, there will be imprints which will begin to come up in our lifetime. So we don't see that consciousness that is within the form of a baby. We don't see that consciousness as kind of innately, completely pure. It has Buddha essence in it, but it will have surrounding it already some predispositions, some of which will be in the more negative area. You see, this is what, what is very interesting for me, is that from a Buddhist point of view, you'll see it as karma or residual karma, if you want. The geneticists will say, oh, it's genetic. Babies come to the world with predispositions. Behaviorists will say, no, 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 hold on. It's all about the conditioning that the child is you know, exposed to, even if it's when the child is in his mother's womb or her mother's womb and so on. And it's quite interesting because I think it all leads us in one direction, which is do we know, and I have to ask you because you're my friend, I'm going to have to ask you a very, very controversial question. If I'm going to have so many cycles of life, why don't I party like hell this one? Why don't I just go like, okay, you know what? This level of the game, I'm just going to go party and like do everything. You can. I mean, many people choose that, right? Yeah. And then I'll come back and fix it next time. Are you encouraging me to do it? I'm not going to say you, you can't do that. You can choose to do that for sure. It's just the choice that you're going to make, isn't it? And you may have a great predisposition to party. <laughs> do I? Do I look like... No, I don't know. <laughs> this deep, subtle part of my consciousness needs to party. I feel it. We would tend to see that as a waste of a human life. Because a human life has such great potential, with so many skills and talents, possibility to become a Buddha. So you have two roads in front of you. Hmm, I can become, you know, I can wake my Buddha nature up. It can begin to shine. The compassion for all beings can be there. The wisdom to understand the nature of reality can be there, you know, etc., etc., etc. Or I can choose to, what did you say, party like hell? <laughs> I, did, I did say that. I did say yeah, that. Exactly. And so it just, you can, of course, you can make that choice. But when we look at what the potential of a human life is, doesn't that feel a bit, oh. I mean, if mathematically I have infinite attempts at the game, then what's one of them dancing samba? I mean, like, it's fine, right? Homo. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. I mean, from a Buddhist point of view, we would more see that as a nihilistic point of view. There's really no point. There's no profound point in my life. What the hell? I might as well just treat it like, like I don't have this profound ability. Like it doesn't really matter. I'm just going to drink a lot of cocktails. It's not seeing your true nature or your true potential correctly. It's mistaking your, your being for something other than it is. Once again, I mean, I'm obviously here after 8 p.m. in Dubai when I'm jet-lagged like mad having this conversation because I'm obviously going in the different direction, not the wrong direction. Oh, are you, are you feeling like partying even at 8 at no. night when you're <laughs> no, 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 hold on. Your paycheck <laughs> partying is, it's just going to come out. It's totally not part of my nature. I think that the question here is, we started by saying wisdom, compassion, and the ability to do what is good for all being? Ability is a big subject, but what a primary ability would be to be of benefit to all beings and to 
guide them and help them. Yeah, guide them. Yeah. Yeah. And we often hear of stories like your story, where you start on one end and then end up on the other hand, where we go, you know, you started as a banker, you were a jet setter, as I heard you once say, which I found really, really funny. You know, I wore high heels and I strutted when I walked, <laughs> which is yeah. really amazing. And, and then we go in the other direction. We don't hear of stories that, that said, I found my peace and I found my place, if you want. And then I went back. You know, most people who get the joy of actually finding that level of compassion, finding that level of awakening, let's not call it enlightenment, beginning of awakening, rarely go back. And I'm asking the question to try and sort of drill into that concept. It's like, why do people go in the direction that seems to be difficult and stay there, but rarely ever go the other way? So from a Buddhist point of view, it's because they have connected with something truly meaningful. They have found a way to be in this world is truly meaningful, and that brings them great joy. And so why would you why would you change that? Because life sells you you're Mr. Soul for happy, right? Yeah, because life sells to all of us that it's uh what did they say? You know, it's more fun there. I mean it's uh I don't remember there was a Billy Joel song about how only the good die young and you know when you get to the other side it's it's gonna be more fun if you had fun here. Oh I didn't hear that. I can hear that song in my head now. Come on, Virginia, don't make me wait. That is the one. Yes, that is the one. And my understanding is that this song was written by Billy Joel because he wanted to convince Catholic girl that she needs to um, do more partying with him, isn't it? Totally. What I'm seeing here is this big party theme with (laughs) Imo. But from a Buddhist point of view, I think it is about connecting to something which is and feels meaningful. And I think that's something about how the Buddhist sees the potential of a human to know their meaning in connection to others and to feel that meaning is positive. It's not one that's bringing conflict or disharmony. I think when one has experienced that, returning to a time when maybe one thought so much only about oneself, as if in isolation with various wants, you know, a long list of wants. It looks kind of slightly strange to go back to that way of being, I would say. Yeah. I think what I'm trying to say here is that from one side of it, it seems to be harder to actually be going in the direction of, of your awakening. You know, you have to give up on things. You have to wear robes. You have to practice, practice, practice. You dedicate your life to service, to compassion, which in the eyes of the general, you know, the normal person, especially affected by all of the advertisement and all of the messages of the modern world seems to be difficult. I mean, I'm trying to say people would maybe think that you're giving up on something by choosing to be a nun after being a banker and a successful businesswoman and so on and so forth. But is that true or is the reality that what you're getting is much more valuable than what you're giving up on? I mean, I think from the outside, it does look very much like that, like your list of what you can't do. Can't do this, can't do that. You know, it feels like, oh, you really gave up a lot there, isn't it? Yeah. But 
what you gain by having the freedom from those habits is much more profound. And I think that, you know, once you start to feel the benefits of that, the stability, the simplicity, the perspective it gives you is just quite different. And, you know, one looks, I look back at my old life, or even sometimes I look at the lives of others, and they seem very tangled up, very tangled up and complicated, so complicated, so many things they need, things they don't like, people they don't like, things they have to shout about. And it seems very hard for their simple kindness to come out sometimes, a simple goodness to come out. It looks quite painful. So there's just a, a sort of simplicity and a stability that comes when you've made these kinds of choices. And they bring you happiness, and I think they bring happiness to others. You suddenly realize, oh, that person talked to, to me, maybe they just wanted a bit of a listening ear, or that person felt comfortable to ask you to help them, or whatever it is. You feel as if your place in the world has become a good place. And, you know, one doesn't want to sound like, I mean, I'm in no way perfect. You know, I'm no way like perfect girl guide of the year in, in a different <laughs> outfit. But I know that this has brought out the best in me. And I could do all the other stuff. You know, I could definitely do the financial stuff. I could, I could do that. But it, some part of me didn't come alive. I, I, it's hard to yeah. explain. I actually have to say that, you know, I have many, 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 many friends who are monks and nuns and definitely. Oh, even though you want to party so much, it's very complicated. Sure. Yeah, I'm not a party person at all, as a matter of fact. But uh, when I speak to them, I feel that peace and lightness. I felt it most with you, as a matter of fact. And I wanted to hear from you for my listeners. Why is it that not everyone, I mean, it seems to me so logical when you get to that point where life becomes so much simpler, when life becomes so much more meaningful, that everyone should do it. But it seems that there are shackles of some sort that are getting many of us, let's say, many of the humans that are thriving in the mainstream to find it difficult to make those steps. Oh, I don't think everybody should be a monk or a nun. And you won't find any Buddhist teacher saying that. It's not like, you know, I think everybody should, you know, go out and take monastic vows. It's not appropriate for most people. It's not, it's not the only path, for sure. What other path would you recommend for people to find peace, to help? to make a difference. So let's think of what we said right at the beginning. Every sentient being has Buddha nature within them. That's our starting place. So there are different parts, different ways to bring that out. And the, from a Buddhist point of view, the Buddha talked about the fourfold Sangha. So he described four different elements. In fact, he said they all need to be there. Ordained males, ordained females, and household males and household females, right? So he didn't just say only kind of the monks can, can do this stuff. We've said every sentient being can move towards becoming a Buddha. And, you know, I'm personally so grateful. I mean, if everybody was monks and nuns, I mean, would we be able to talk today? Would there be a monk and a nun creating Zoom? And 
or whatever, right? I mean, it's we all have a part to play here. Let's hope it's a good part that's motivated from a good place in our being. But in no way is Buddhism just the path for or a monastic. If you think about what is your motivation, what, what is it you wish to contribute to this world? Yeah, most people will want to leave this world feeling that it's a better place because they've been in it. That's not just something monks and nuns feel. You talk to normal, everyday people and they'll say, yeah, I want to feel I've left the world a better place because I've been in it. Now, if we start from that premise, that's not exclusive to Buddhism, it's not exclusive to a monastic, but it is a human question that I think everybody could ask that question, I think we'd get some really interesting answers. And you probably find that once you've asked yourself that question, okay, I want to leave the world a better place because I've been in it. You will probably, just like any project, you'll think, right, now how am I going to do that? What's the gift that I have? What's the area that I'm drawn to if I want to leave the world a better place? And from that, some answers will come. For me, to bring out the best in me, to make me less of a selfish person, something in me, this is best for me, right? But it's not necessarily best for everybody. But I think to ask that question, I think that absolutely is the question to ask, especially that I believe that we are not only, many of us today, we talk about the things that affect our world, but in reality, we're not even leaving it, let alone it's not a better place. Some of us are leaving it as a worse place, not evil people in any way. I mean, if you just think about your plastic bottle consumption and what that does to the rest of being, think about your dietary habit and what that means to animals and things like that. And by the way, I'm not saying everyone should be a vegetarian or you should, right? I'm just saying we need to start thinking about things like what am I doing to make the world a better place? And at least what am I doing to not make the world a worse place? Yes, and this may come back to something you mentioned earlier. So often in Buddhism, we would want somebody to reflect on the idea of what is enough for them, what is sufficient for them, right? Because when there's a state of enoughness, there's a state of contentment. When you don't feel you have enough, you want more, there's a state of, of grasping, isn't it? But I don't think in the culture that I've grown up in that that sounds very appealing. Because the notion of the kind of mind, the stability of mind and the joyfulness of mind, which comes from knowing how much enough is for you. Yeah. You know, now, now what do I wish to do? I'm freed now from grasping for more. And not everybody's in this situation I appreciate. But rather than seeing it as I have less or I'm not going to get any more, what you gain with knowing how much is okay for me to have this contented mind is you get that freedom of mind. And that's the most precious thing, really. Yeah. And I think then it's much more likely that you will turn your mind to knowing how to be in the world, how to contribute 
to the world all the time that we think that we need more and more and more. Somehow a lot of our energy is being taken up in that direction. Yeah. And away from the question of, okay, but what is it when I leave this world? What is it that I want to know that I did that, that left it a better place? Because we're too taken up still. Yeah. You know, like those squirrels that are hoarding all their nuts or whatever. They just go around hoarding, hoarding, hoarding all their nuts. Would you be open to sharing a little bit about how much actually is enough? I mean, I picture you as a banker closing massive deals and, as you said, wearing high heels, jet setting, staying in five stars hotel. And I see you now with your simple shrine behind you with your robes with a much more, I mean, if you don't mind me saying, I've seen your pictures as a banker and I know you now and you're clearly happier. I don't know if I can say that on your behalf. What is enough? I know now you don't have the high heel shoes. What else? I mean, what do we actually need to live a comfortable life? What does the life of a nun require? Yeah, so I suppose the components to my life are quite different now. And I'm quite clear about what, in a sense, I need. What are the core components for my life which bring me happiness and bring out the best in me? So they are Dharma practice and study. You know, we do a lot of study of Buddhist texts, etc. I find that very inspiring. Uh, to have a teacher, to have a spiritual guide, very important. To have, for me, to have friends. When I was a banker, I didn't really have many friends. And it was quite hard to make profound friendships in that world, I found. So uh, one of the joys now is I know many people and I feel this great friendliness. I feel like I'm a very friendly person now. <laughs> you really are. And I, I realize that I really love being a friendly person. And yeah. uh, when you're in robes, it's much easier to be friendly. <laughs> why are you saying hello to me? Or why are you, why are you opening the door for me? You know, they're just like, oh, yeah, I can see it's you're this friendly thing. You know, in those robes, it's all about friendliness. Yeah. So it's been a license, uh, not to sound too James Bond, but it has been a license for friendliness. <laughs> so that's also something which has become very important to me. So those are, yeah, those are essential things. The charity is an essential thing. I just, for me to have peace of mind, I need to, at the end of my day, think, was I a good person today? It sounds so simple. Was I a good uh... person? Did I lose my temper with somebody? Did I get frustrated? Da, da, da. Or was I, a, was I a pretty decent human being today? And as long as I've been a pretty decent human being, then I sleep easily. And um, it wasn't that I wasn't, I mean, I was an okay human being as a banker. I don't know, it's hard to describe. But when I look at it back now, it's like I'm in a box and I'm a little bit shriveled. I feel able to expand now in terms of, I don't know, that's just how it's not, I'm not being very articulate now. It's just bringing out the best in me. Do you miss any of that, you know, laywoman life at all? Uh, I've had a couple of times where it's been not exactly lonely, but you have to have a kind of mental resilience because you don't have like a life companion with you or whatever, you know, to chat things through and da 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 
I think you have to be quite strong as a person. Yeah. And so that I've had a couple of moments when that's been tough, but now I feel very, I know on some level, I like you say, it looks like you've lost so much, but I cannot, it's hard to explain how free I feel. I know exactly. It's hard mean. to explain how free I feel. And I think, you know, when I wrote the book, there's lots of metaphors about sky in the book. And I think that's something because you feel that kind of expansiveness uh, somehow. I don't know. I know exactly what you feel. I mean, I, I mean it's, it is really, it's impossible to describe actually, because, you know, I'm like you, I've had a, a real career in business. And even today I have my startups and I'm, you know, I work around 60% of my time is and actually still engaged in business. I do 70% of my time more in, uh, in happiness, but uh, I work 130, that's fine. But the thing for me is it's with a very different kind of detachment. So, I mean, one of my current startups stands to be a unicorn and a very, very, very big success. Or in the lights of COVID, it could also shut down. You know, it's very uncertain times. And I'm completely in my heart. I'm completely okay. It's really amazing. It's such freedom. I engage in every decision with a complete understanding that if, like you said, if I did well today, if I was a good person today, that's all I care about. And it's such an amazing, amazing level of freedom. Yeah. I mean, it's important though that one's basic needs are met, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. we're in a situation of shelter and food and, you know, yeah. friends, etc., yeah. etc. Et et so there are those basic human needs which need to be met. And then you have the enough where you can have that lighter approach to things. Yeah, yeah. Actually, that was the reason for my question. I mean, what are those basic human needs? When I spent time in, in my retreats or, you know, when I'm in a spiritual teaching or whatever, we eat a bowl of rice and some vegetables and, you know, and it's very simple and it's very easy. And, you know, for us, in, you know, I still practice Ramadan uh, fasting every year. You eat once a day and you suddenly realize you actually don't need three meals a day. You don't need, you know, all of the fancy restaurants. You don't really need much. And life somehow becomes easier. <laughs> it's not more difficult. Yeah. I think many of those basic needs of a human, like eating or clothes or hair or whatever, they can become as time-consuming as you wish, right? And I don't yeah. think there's anything wrong with going to a nice place to eat a nice meal. And I think it's very useful occasionally to experience like you've expressed on, on Ramadan or very, very simple. If the mind wishes the flexibility, the flexibility, it's if the mind gets too stuck in needing things to be a certain way somehow that it's, it's not so good. So we want to be flexible for me my things like eating all the sort of practical things of life they're down to a bare minimum and that helps because it gives me more time to concentrate on doing what i wish to do that i think i is what i really need for me i mean i need food but i don't need to for me it doesn't make me particularly happy or to spend a lot of time doing lots of cooking it's not it's not for me maybe for somebody else it is and then maybe they can cook for other people or they can contribute to a charity or they can do some you know, create a lot of help and support for others with that skill. For me, it's not particularly uh, 
a skill. So it's down to the bare minimum. And that gives the spiritual practitioner the time to read the books, to do the practice. A lot of daily things of living now, I don't know, we're supposed to have all these time saving devices, but it still seems to take forever, isn't it? And all yeah. of that, it just takes away the amount of time and energy to do any kind of spiritual endeavor if you if you wish to. And it's very hard, it's very, very hard for everybody not to get into the habit of, right, uh, you know, I'm going to do this, then do this, do this, do this, and then, then I'm going to iron the tea towels and then I'm going to meditate or whatever. <laughs> It's to come right at the bottom of that list, isn't it? Yeah. So again, I think it's if one looks at what are the key things that help you as a human being bring out the best in you and make you feel at the end of the day, yeah, I was a good human being, just check that you've got those components in the right, if you can, check you've got them in the right proportion for that. I want to take a, a bit of our remaining time, Emma, to talk about two projects that you champion that I think are amazing. So I want to talk about your book and your charity. And, you know, Set Free, I mean, seriously, were you the only one that picked that title? I mean, this is like a mega title. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like how did you find that? Did you have, do you like sort of have setfree.com? Is that your book page? No, no, no. <laughs> so the book, I'll, I'll be honest, the book, the first, the real title of the book for a long time, was the bee that flew out of the jar. That was the title. And it's still, if you look in the book, it's the epilogue is called The Bee That Flew Out of the Jar. Right? Because I, I love that. Bees and yogic thinking and Buddhist thinking, there's this metaphor of how we go round and round uh, smelling the flowers, like these kind of intoxicated bees, and we never look up and, and fly to the sky, to, yeah. you know, into the wide expanse yeah. of the sky, right? So... And the book was called that for ages, and then the publisher said it's too long a title. Nobody reads long titles anymore. It's got to be a short title, one or two words, right? I was like, oh, okay. And I, yeah, I tried about a million titles like you do, you know, and then Set Free seemed to be the best one. But there's a very famous book and a film in the UK called Born Free. That's maybe more your scenario. You know when you describe <laughs> it, maybe yeah. that are perfect, Born Free, right? Yeah. It was about lions in Africa or something anyway. And so I said, yeah, but what about born free? I'm like, this is set free. Yeah, but it sounds like born free. That's set free. Anyway, in the end, we discovered that's not worried about the animals in Africa. Let's just call it set free. <laughs> yeah. That was good. And, um, and I noticed even some very famous people now are having this concept of finding freedom in their, yeah. in their books they write. Did you notice that? There seems to be an irony in the title because it came from your captivity. So the title is beautiful in every way, but when you really know the story of you being captured, kidnapped at gunpoint, and calling that trigger set free, I think that's an enormous message for people that suffer hardship today. Yes. So there's the idea of physical freedom, physical release of the body having been held in a, within four walls and then to run through an open door, you know, that physical release. But from a Buddhist point of view, we talk about mental freedom. We talk about a state of uh, liberation from greed and anger and selfishness. So the title was supposed to, as you say, refer to 
the courage to physically for yourself, but also the courage to mentally for yourself. Yeah. Do you believe that, I know this is a difficult question, but I've gone through hardship myself. Do you believe that this is life's way of saying, hey, I need you on the other side. Don't waste your time here. Do we have to go through a tough experience to change direction and find our path to awakening, if you want? I think the human life will always have difficulty in it. If not, that we will just age and probably experience loss of people significant to us and we will experience setbacks. Right? That's Unfortunately, it's very rare you'll find a human where they haven't had some kind of difficulty, isn't it? But how you choose to learn from that, change from that, yeah, it's always a possibility to look for the wisdom that comes out of a difficult situation. And wisdom doesn't tend to come out of situations that are going easily. You know, it's a bit kind of a ha, 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 this is great, I love this, you know. Mm, and I've learned it doesn't work. Situations really that make us think again. What am I about? What do I want to do? What is that that's going on there for me? But situations which really make us inquire and often ask, when you think of the world, I mean, even, you know, sometimes the devastating points, like if you see a lot of suffering or something, you know, how does that make sense? These really difficult questions about meaning that encourage people to think more clearly about what matters to them and how they want to spend their time, I think they usually come out of situations of difficulty. I don't think they usually come out to beautiful summer's day when you're having a picnic in the park. And do you believe that the hardship that the world is going through now also has messages, wisdom that we can reflect on, something positive that we can learn? Yeah, so from a Buddhist point of view, we talk about the capacity to be wise at the moment of the event, and we talk about the capacity to be wise after the event. I think at the moment, it will be possible to develop wisdom probably after the event. I think it's quite hard to be wise in the event because so many of our threat systems, our sense of being overwhelmed, of fear, of the unknown, don't know where this is going, I don't you know how to tackle it. All of these sorts of things that, that trigger our threat system are going on and that tends to cut down our capacity to think clearly and wisely, just in the neuroscience of how the brain works. So I suspect that we will find wisdom out of this, but it, there may be a time delay. And that was true even in my story and I think for many people it's that recovery and basic healing and then the capacity to reflect and see the wisdom it does tend to come later i think did you find that in your in your life uh yeah i had many many types of harshness i think the big one losing ali if you could say i think it was clear to me that was it was time to change direction i mean in a way i didn't actually really change direction if you want as much as i changed priorities basically in terms of what I dedicated my life to, instead of helping entrepreneurs, I started to say, maybe the time is worth spending on helping making people happier, I think. How are people in Bhutan under the lockdown? So their borders are completely closed and they are being careful, but in many ways their life is continuing fairly normally at the moment with some masks and social distancing. They seem to have coped pretty well. 
nobody has died of COVID in Bhutan at this point. And so, yeah, it's a small population, you know, 700,000. Population density is, you know, it's not a very dense population. So really just the capital is fairly densely populated. So in terms yeah. of community transition, I, the nature of the culture and those population density figures means it's <laughs> quite an auspicious <laughs> set of situations. Is your charity work continuing? I mean, are yes, people... yes, yes, yes. Charity work is continuing. So Ugan is in the east of Bhutan at the moment, putting in some clean water filters to some schools in East Bhutan. And that is all, yes, definitely continuing. And the special needs schools, particularly the one in the east that we have done so much to help, that should be reopening in March. So we have fingers crossed for that, as we say in England. And uh, if if the COVID situation continues in Bhutan for much longer, then we may shift some projects there. But the charity will always be doing things because we have Ugin there as the country representative, and I don't want him sitting around watching television. The businesswoman in you, the, the manager in you is like, go yeah, out exactly. and work. Exactly. Put the mask on and do something good. <laughs> you help your country. And so, and he's very dedicated. So he also wouldn't want to just be sitting around not being of benefit. Mm-hmm. It is really so heartwarming to listen to your story. I heard one of your interviews, how you sort of wanted to give back to that country that, that gave you. And we all think of Bhutan as, you know, the country that has gross happiness product and everybody must be happy there. But people, I think, miss the fact that it actually is a poor country. And in many ways, if we can help, we should help, right? It's something that is uh, definitely needed, especially for the, for the parts that you focus on, where, which are children and children in, you know, with special needs, basically. Yeah, I mean, Bhutan, it's called Gross National Happiness. That's the vision of the fourth king of Bhutan. Yeah, so it has that, and it's an extraordinary country. It's just left the category of least developed countries or something. So it's definitely improving. But as we know from so many countries which are, are still on the way, particularly the rural quality of life versus urban quality of life is quite different, actually. So having spent time in more of the rural areas, I realized there was an opportunity to help. And my heart was really touched by some of the things I saw in those rural areas. So it wasn't, it has required determination, but somehow something really sort of turned in my heart and I just haven't been able to stop. I mean, I, <laughs> I, it's hard to explain. I mean, really, it's really tiring as I don't know why I do it, but I just can't, I will not give up from doing it. I I just won't. I know I won't. And, yeah, I love Bhutan immensely, and I'm without Bhutan, I would not have found my teachers. And as I said at the beginning, on a spiritual path, you must have honest teachers that can help you. And, uh, you know, that is just how to explain it, to be able to turn to, you know, one of my teachers in Bhutan, you know, I'm reading a text, you know, I'm reading a text, I just say, oh, I graduated now, hold on a second, what does this mean? I don't really, really think about this, right? And then I can reach out to them and say, can I, you know, can I just check? You know, when it says this, da, 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 
you know, what exactly does that mean and how would you put that into practice or da-da-da? To make it come alive, to engage with the teacher, these amazing thoughts and ideas and ways of being, but it has to come alive. And if it's going to come alive for you, you're probably going to need to have a teacher which inspires you and, and helps it take it off the page and really into your very depths of your heart, you know, and that's why teachers are so essential. <laughs> uh, Emma, I can't thank you enough. Like every time you were my teacher today. So I'm very grateful for that. I'm really grateful for your time and for your wisdom and for your peace, which I feel immensely. Oh, it's my pleasure. How are you feeling? How's the jet lag now? <laughs> I was completely awake during the conversation. That's okay. your impact on me. There you go. But really, thank you so much for sharing. And I always love our conversations. I hope we have a chance to speak again soon. Yeah, I'm sure we will do, even with all the complications of lockdown, I'm sure it'll happen. So thank you, Mo. Sleep well. Sleep well and then, yeah, and then wake up, yeah? <laughs> I wish. Keep sending those WhatsApp messages. I love them. Thank you so much. Okay, I will do. And maybe I'll see you in Dubai, December the 3rd. That's the deal. December 3rd, I have an extra room here. You're my guest. <laughs> Emma, thank you so much. All right, we'll talk soon. Bye-bye. All right, bye. Well, there you have it. Have I been a good person today? That question that we should ask ourselves at the end of every day is probably the guide that takes us on a path to the purpose of our life. I really enjoyed my conversation with Emma, as I always do. On this one, I had to rush, actually, and finish a little quicker than I wanted to, to go to another talk. But I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Find me on social media and let's continue the conversation. I'm mo underscore gaudet on Instagram, mo.gaudet.official on Facebook, mo gaudet on LinkedIn, and mgaudet on Twitter. Thank you for joining us today. I love you all for listening, and I'll see you next time.